Hello, and welcome to Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm your host, Pacifico Soldati. The show explores topics from law and business to consciousness, spirituality, and everything in between. We feature accomplished leaders across many fields to help you get more out of your life. You can learn more and stay up to date at theluepodcast.com. If you're not familiar with my background, I'm a helper, parent, marketer, attorney outlaw, certified mediator, story brand guide, omnist, yoga teacher, and a former paratrooper and award-winning army chef at the 82nd Airborne Division and U.S. Army Special Operations Command. I'm the founder and CEO of the Soldati Group, a marketing agency helping startups, small businesses, and law firms leverage the power of story to grow their businesses. Law, Universe, and Everything is a production of the Soldati Group. All opinions expressed by the hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of the Soldati Group or guest employers. This podcast is for information and entertainment purposes only, and these discussions do not constitute legal or investment advice. Okay. Today's episode is brought to you by Prosperitas, an animated video agency that can help you bring your company's ideas, values, products, and messages to life with the power of video storytelling. Whether you strive to win more customers, engage, or educate your audience, Prosperitas will craft each video specifically targeted to fit your brand and vision. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn more. That's P-R-O-S-P-E-R-I-T-A-S agency.com to find out how Prosperitas can create the best videos your company has ever had. My guest today is Ellen Kane. Ellen is an innovation consultant trainer, facilitator, and speaker with 20 years of experience helping companies navigate innovation challenges. She guides Fortune 500, small businesses, and nonprofits to understand innovation, create innovative new products and services, build effective teams, and support a user-centered culture. In addition, she's been a facilitator, coach, and lecturer for the Haas School of Business and the VP of Innovation for a Startup. She's also spoken at numerous conferences on the topic of design thinking and creativity. Trained in creative problem solving and design thinking, Ellen received an MS in creativity and change leadership from the International Center for Studies in Creativity at Buffalo, New York, and has a business degree from Sciences Po Paris, a top French business school. Thanks so much for joining me today, Ellen, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Pacifico. Really happy to be here. So happy to have you. So tell me, what inspired you to embrace creativity and innovation as a career path in and of itself? It, it started early because I, I went to school and went to business school and I was trying to find the most creative thing I can do out of business school. So when I graduated, I started my career in advertising and I worked there for a few years. And then I moved to this to the U.S. and I worked in marketing research for a while and I was good at it, but I got bored over time. And I went to a conference, a creativity conference, and I was like, this is my tribe. This is the thing I love to do. And that put me on an interesting path. I went back to school. I got a master in creativity and change leadership. And that's what I've been doing ever since. Wow. So what was the experience like immigrating to the U.S.? That was, it's interesting because on one hand, it feels you see so many movies and you think that you understand the US is not that different than France. But on the other hand, when you get to the cultural level, there's so much to learn. And I'm still always sometimes at shock of some of the cultural differences between Europe and oh, totally. 
So do you have a creative process? Do you do things ad hoc and it's just a very holistic thing? Like you get into any given project and you just take a totally different approach or how do you manage? If you look, there is different creative process that I be that are being used. But what I like to go back is a big, the broader level. And there is no matter what kind of a universal creative process. And at the higher level, it's three things. You have to understand the problem. Then you have to come up with options, develop them and implement four big steps. And whatever the name of the process, you may heard of agile, design thinking, creative problem solving. Universally, every time we have a problem for which we don't have an answer, because that's really where we need creative thinking, then we have to really dig into the problem, coming up with ideas, developing them, and trying them and implement them. So that's the biggest level, and that's we do it all the time. Often we're not conscious, and this really we're helping uh, teams because a team is put together, they are chartered to go and innovate. We need you to come up with new ideas. We need you to create change. And they have their own creative process, but since it hasn't, it's rarely taught in schools, whether it's business school or engineering schools and or any other background you have. And so you put the team together and you say, go and create something new. And it's really stressful because they don't have a common process. They don't have common tool and common language. And this is the work I do is help um, team understand that if you're more aware of the process, if you're aware of the tools that you can work together, then you can be much more successful. And it's also much more, um, it's much more easier and comfortable because you know what you're doing. You might not know what the outcome, because that's a creative outcome. You don't know what it is, but you know how to do it and how to work together. And collaboration is so important in innovation and creative work. Oh, definitely. And it sounded like implicit in there as well is the need to always be testing, right? Don't let the perfect become the enemy of the good. Don't try and find the solution before you've actually tested anything. Just brainstorm those ideas that can actually be put into practice and then just let it rip and, and make something happen. Yeah, so one of the framework I use uh, very frequently is design thinking. And design thinking has three words that are really important. I had a discussion once with the director of the D school at the time, George Campbell, and I asked him what is design thinking? And he said, it's user-centered, iterative and prototype driven. And the prototype is really important because in traditional corporate culture, there is the idea that we do things in the funnel and we want to be perfect and we don't share anything within to management before we have everything perfect and we know it's going to work and we have the numbers. But the reality is we don't know before we try. And so prototyping and actually prototyping early and quickly is so powerful because we learn so much by trying things rather than just talking about it. Putting an idea on a deck, we don't know. But if you put the idea, some form of the idea to 10 people and have them react to it and try it, then you're going to learn so much and you're going to save a lot of time and money rather than uh, have the perfect idea before you try it out in the real world. And that's awesome. So how can startups and small businesses foster more innovation internally? Ultimately, innovation is about a mindset. And it's about the idea that we might not know. We have some ideas and a lot of startups start with an idea and that's great. And you want to, one, be sure that which problem are we tackling with this idea and their needs from the users. 
you see a lot of failure in startup because the idea is really exciting, but we never talk to the users. We don't know if that's what they want and this is not how they want it. So you want to be sure that you understand your users and then you want to be sure that that idea that you have is so great. It's one idea, but there might be other variation. There means, so don't be so invested in the idea of really early on the process. Just think it's a beginning of something and then build it and then do different ways around the idea and test it and see which is this original idea or is there a version of it or is it combined with something else? And also an idea is often when we talk ideas about what the value proposition, what we offer to our end users, but there's so many other elements that are really important in a startup to be successful. And is as how is a product going to be distributed? How do we talk about it? Which other organization might we partner it? What the financial model? And all of those are actually part of the innovation, but often we think it's only the product or the service that is the idea, but the idea and the ultimate concept that you offer to the world has so many elements. And I use a lot of the model called business model canvas, which is a great tool for every business, but particularly for startup. When you look at nine elements of your offer, and so the value proposition that the product is just one of the nine, but all the other one are important. And also you can be innovative in all of the elements. So you might have something that you offer that's been offered by your competitors, but you might have a unique way to, to distribute it. You might have a unique way to, to sell it through different channel. And this could be the innovation. Oh, definitely agree and love the business model canvas. I think that's so, it brings so much clarity and simplifies everything just down into one page, even yes. better than maybe like the one page marketing plan and stuff like that. Cause it really just, it really hones and focuses you and says, okay, this is actually what our business is. This is where it's going. This is how it's going to make money. So, yes. and also often people think about the business canvas, it's just a picture of the business, but I love to use it as an innovation tool, almost like a scenario planning. So what if we were to change something in the business canvas? It can be our target. We ha what if we try to find something that address a new segment or a different segment? Then what else would change in the canvas? Or what if we partner with this nonprofit organization or this college? What would happen to the other element of it? So I love to use the canvas as an innovation tool. Oh, definitely. So with the strive to work from home lately, especially forced upon many professionals because of the pandemic, have you seen any signs that working from home is stifling innovation and creativity? And how do you see the future of work evolving? Yes and no. I think that first, what I saw is a lot of business, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, were not looking at innovation because they were more like in a survival mode. It's like, how can we adapt? and how we can keep our business at least afloat. So that was the first phase of the, of the pandemic. I think after that, I think it's like crisis is opportunity. So I think some business has not been very innovative or not focused on innovation. Some others have taken that opportunity to see what options and new ways to think about it, even the way we work. Two years ago, if you had say, some company are going to tell people you can work from home for, all the time, it would be impossible. And we had the best prototype. We had such a proof of concept in the past year and a half that it's actually possible. It may not be ideal for a certain company, but there is definitely uh, that possibility of changing how we work. The biggest challenge I found doing the work at home is like a lot of organizations don't really know how you facilitate good meeting virtually. 
that didn't know how to facilitate good meeting in the first place. And then you had the virtual element, the fact that it's so easy to, if you're not engaging your team, it's so easy to disengage because they're not in the room. So who knows what else they're doing, when they, especially when the camera is off. So how do you facilitate great virtual meeting? I think it's still a challenge. I was, my work was mostly in person. And so I had to rethink and retool my work. And I started to work with whiteboards and that had like mural or other apps. And that's been really powerful, how much work you can do if you have a big whiteboard and you organize whatever the meeting's going to be in different sections and you use post-its and everybody is engaged because you, everybody has a chance to actually actively participate whether than just wait their turn to maybe speak for two minutes in an hour meeting. So I think that there is power in a virtual meeting and they can be even more efficient because the nice thing with a whiteboard is after the meeting is still there for everybody to see and some people can add something asynchronously and we, it can evolve over time. But not many uh, people are trained or even think about how what are the best ways to facilitate virtual meetings so they're actually very efficient and uh, uh, engaging and really bring cooperation? Yeah, I think that's really shown a huge need for you know its own ecosystem and a set of startups that are looking to solve that problem. And I've seen some different companies doing it where it's a more sort of interactive and simulating like a real world type of thing. Either some are doing like AR or VR, but then even like on a slightly lower tech side, they can just have the virtual conference room or something where you could have tables where people can sit and talk one-on-one -on -one or four tops or six tops or something like that and emulating things that have been going on like in video games right whether it's fortnite or animal crossing or something and taking elements of those virtual worlds and then putting it into a business context for team building and for creativity and innovation and brainstorming and just actually improving upon the way meetings were in person because a lot of a lot of meetings were useless before the pandemic and i'm sure that metastasized but now there's actually like a technological push to solve it from a technical perspective. I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, I think technology gives us a lot of opportunity and we have to know how to use technology, which is always a thing. So there is great technology, but if, and the challenge I found, if is nobody thinking about the meeting in itself, that they only focus on what we're going to do, which is usually talking and not thinking what is the best way to get the best outcome for that group, thinking as a facilitator, and an enabler of the group, then a lot of opportunity I missed. Oh, I definitely agree. So I'd love to know what have been some of your favorite projects to work on and maybe companies to work with over the years? No, I love to work with team because I think there's so much opportunity in teams and also so much missed opportunity in teams. One of the, one of the session that I love to do is, is using a tool called Foresight. And Foresight is an instrument that measures the preference for different part of that creative process that I was describing. So either clarifying, understanding the process, ideating, coming up with idea, developing those ideas to solution, and the last one is implementing. And so we all have some preferences, uh, high and low, for each of those four dimensions. We can have preferences for one, two, three, or all four of those dimensions. And so I start a session with people taking that instrument online and have their own profile. And then we start doing team activities and they realize how different it is when you work with people who are either similar to you in terms of their preferences or not similar. 
Uh, and then the next step is to actually map a team profile. And that's usually amazing because it's such eye-opening. As a team really understand why there ha might have been challenges working on some element of this the innovation. So for example, I was working with a, with a team in tech and when, so the VP, his profile, his preference was ideating. So he always come up to meeting with a lot of ideas. And then when we map his team, we saw that there's only two people that had ideating as a high profile, but the team was mostly low preference on ideating. And it was really a big eye opening for him because he understood why he come to the meeting with all those ideas and they fell flat with the team because the team were more about, as like they were more focusing on implementing and there were oh, more ideas, more problem to implement. And there was a lot of unspoken discomfort. And once you know that, then it really helps because you can train, you can see the, also the diversity and the benefit of diversity of thinking in the team, that there might be people that have different preferences and uh, they'll bring something interesting to the group and it's really uh, help the, the group works better together. So I love those sessions because it's such a discovery and such a ha-ha that they really can take and start uh, understanding each other better and appreciate the diversity of thinking. What do you love most about teaching at Haas and how did you end up? I Basically, I went to a conference at Haas many years ago and I approached one of the professors that was organizing the conference and that's, I say, I'm in creativity innovation. And we start talking and over the years, I got involved in different uh, shape or form with, with a class and with uh, first with a team of students, I was coaching them on an innovation project they were doing for corporation. So I was really in a facilitator's role. And then over time, I also, I was involved in one of the classes called problem finding, problem solving that was created at Haas to teach students, business students to think about solving problems creatively. So really what we talk about earlier and then more recently, I'm working with the executive program and they have a product management class and I am actually coaching a business model canvas there. Oh, excellent. That sounds like so much fun. Yeah, I love it. And I love the diversity, both the students and then right now the professionals and coming from different organizations. I, I just love that and helping seeing the business in a different way. So what are you most excited for to see in the coming decade, whether it's in technology, innovation, creativity? The challenge of technology is that technology is neutral in terms of morals, and it can be used for good and bad. And so for me, that's the biggest question. As we get more technology, that technology can do more. What, what is going to be the purpose of that technology? And hopefully that technology will be in service of making the world a better place and solving a huge problem that we have right now. Oh, yeah, definitely. I see. It sounds like you do. There's a bit of ethics involved in the sort of work that you're doing. Is, it, is that correct? Or just something personally that you mean? It's personal. What I do, a creative process also can be used for good or bad. And so what I, I love my work because I think it gives people uh, more ability to create changes that are needed for the organization, for themselves, for the world. But then it's, it's their choice whether they do it or apply it to something that is not so good. But my goal is really what I, I would love to do more is really apply my, my skills and my passion to nonprofit and social entrepreneurship to really uh, make more of an impact because I, I believe that what I do is really powerful. And so that's what I want to put to the universe. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so important. So Ellen, I'd love to know how has a failure or an apparent failure 
set you up for later success? And do you have a favorite failure? In my work, I say that failure is actually really useful, especially if you can fail early because the cost is limited and the learning is huge. And really embracing failure is really important. In my personal life, I was in the startup for a while and startup is, and I had a, a partner and we worked together well for a while and then it didn't work so well and we part ways. And in a way it was a failure. And on the other hand, I learned a lot about startup. I learned and learned about partnership and working together in a business situation. And that was a great experience. And that's something I can bring and leverage in my work and with team. And um, the other thing is I do, I do improv. And so in improv, failure is totally embraced. And it's, you do a scene and it works, it's great. It doesn't work. We just do, you know, curtains down and we start the next scene and it's just fun. And so uh, it really helped me personally to just see failure as, okay, that scene sucks. Okay, next one. And just having fun and just realizing that uh, it's really part of life. And you're afraid of failure, then you don't take enough risk and you don't try enough. Oh, couldn't agree more. Ellen, what is one of the best or most worthwhile investments that you've ever made? And feel free to take the word investments as broadly as you. I think the, one of the best investment is I decided to go back to school 15 years ago and got my master. I think that was really great. I, I went to that conference. I heard about the creative um, problem solving process. I felt people that are like, this is my tribe and I wanted more. And I just came back and I, uh, somebody had mentioned that master and I looked into it and I applied. And at the same time, I was pregnant with my third kid. So it was a interesting, challenging two years, but that was the best investment of my time and my money and my, my passion. That's a great example for me. Oh, definitely. So how have you found mentors and advisors throughout your... You know, it's really interesting because I think mentoring is really, it's part of the American culture. And to be honest, in France, I never had a mentor, really. It, it's more, especially in school, it's more like a very, the professor come and do the class and leave and that's the end of it. Before I moved here, I didn't have really mentors in France. Here I had a couple of mentors when I used to work in corporate that support me and push me. And then on my business, it's been, I would say, people that have been through my program that we, every month or two, we just talk about each other's business and independent consultant, but we support each other. Sometimes we get involved in each other's uh projects. So that's been more like the type of mentoring and support I have than a formal mentor to mentee relationship. Oh, very interesting. So what advice would you give to a smart, driven high school or college graduate about to enter the real world? And is there any advice that they should ignore? So actually, it's interesting because I have a son that just graduated from college and my daughter just going to college next year. So it's a really appropriate question. The first thing is try to find your passion. I think that's the most important and follow it and see where it can bring you. No, not because don't do something because you're supposed to do it. Do something because you're passionate about it. And if you're passionate about it, there'll be a way. It might not seem obvious, but over time it will make sense. So that would be my first, um, my first piece of advice. And I think what not to do, I think it's about, you know, thinking about risk and taking risk, try things. If nothing else, right? thinking risk is in making things so big, like people are frozen. And I really think that people should not feel like every decision is huge, but really try some small thing and fail and that's okay. And failures are great. There's nothing wrong with failing. It's better if you can 
really embrace it and do it small because you try it early rather than thinking these things and thinking about it forever and then try it and then it becomes this huge thing that you fail. But so that's really about be comfortable with failure, be comfortable with ambiguity and not knowing. People always ask you, what do you want to do when you go up? What do you want to do in five years? What do you want to do when you retire? And, and sometimes it's, it's okay. I don't know. I don't know. And just saying, I don't know and see what come up, comes up and not having that anger, that not anger, but anxiety about, I, I have to know, and I have to have all the answers. You don't need answers, all the answers yet, or ever. <laughs> so true. So what are one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? So the first book I would say is when I was uh, <clears throat> a child, I read this book about Ellen Keller, who was blind and deaf at, at birth. And I remember being a little girl, it really strikes me about, it seems like this is impossible odds and how she overcome them and had an amazing life. And I just remember that was really a striking book that felt like a poemy as a girl to think about what is possible and against all odds, you can believe in yourself. So I think that's the first one. The second one is actually a book I'm reading right now, which called The Ministry for the Future by Stanley Robinson. And it's, it's a kind of a futuristic book, but it's really based on what we know today about climate change. And so it's taking the world in now a few years and what would happen and what is possible and not possible. And so it's really interesting because it's based on site. Do we have to pump water in the Arctic to avoid the melting of other glaciers or things like that, which those technology do exist, has been discussed. So it's, and it's really thinking about where our world is going. And as I mentioned, I have kids and that's really a big question I have is what is it going to be for kids and are we going to be able to solve or make it at least okay for them. It won't be the same world, but what can we do? And back to, is technology going to be used for good? And can we politically put our differences aside so we can have a sustainable world for our kids? And uh, I don't know about the, the third book. I don't know. I have, a, I have so many books, it's hard to pick a third one. So maybe I'll pass on that one. Oh, that's totally cool. No worries. So if you could have a gigantic billboard anywhere with anything on it, what would it say and why? Okay, gigantic billboard. Yeah, what would it say? I think it would say, follow the passion. And that's what it would say. I think if we follow more of a passion, you know, what really our heart and our body is telling us, rather than always be or too often in our head, I think that maybe we'll connect at a better, even as, as people, we will connect at a better level if we were uh, not passionate about things that are important to us, not in a not in a, you know, seeing our humanity in each other's in, in that passion. The passion is what really uh, make us feel strong and, and feeling about life and, and seeing each other. Like somebody that's passionate, is, you can be passionate about things that somebody else might hate, but I think it's going to be true to yourself and the deeper level. And I think that's what I would like for everybody. Oh, definitely. So who have been some of your heroes throughout your life and how did they help or inspire you? You know, I'm not a really hero person, to be honest. It's the question about role models. I've been creating my own past and it's based on my intuition, my passion, and not necessarily on the role model from the outside world. Oh, very cool. You're actually, I've gotten a few people to answer like something similar along those lines. And it's really interesting to see 
that sort of dichotomy of people that have looked outside and then the people that from a young age, like always look within. It's very, very fascinating differentiation. So what are your go-to self-care strategies, tactics, or techniques? So I think self-care is really important. And definitely this past year and a half has has been so critical because we had to keep our sanity in a difficult and isolated situation. So for me, it's body and mind. So I exercise uh, regularly. I've been doing Pilates for 20 years and move that practice to online. I'm lucky to be in California, so I try to go in nature as much as possible, go hiking, walking, be outside. And that's really has helped me. And then I also try to do meditation 10 minutes a day, every most of the days. And then for fun, as I was mentioning, I do improv. And uh, that also had moved to Zoom in the past year and a half. And that's been great because improv is about being in the moment. It's about trusting whatever's come from to your mouth or your body is right and work with each other because you have to have your partner. One of the rules of improv is make your partner look good. And so accepting offers. And so that's also been really uh, useful as part of self-care. So what first led you into the world of improv? It's, so after I graduated from my master, I always been curious about the relationship between improv and creativity. And so I wanted to start doing improv. And uh, since I had a little bit more time, that's when I started. And I've been doing it in and out for 10, 10 years. And then for the past three years, I've been doing it uh, on a regular basis on every week. And it's been a great journey. Oh, yeah, it's so fun. Both my brother and sister have been clowns and improv people in L.A. for years, and they just can't get enough of it. So it's really cool what comes out of it and all sorts of silly, random stuff. And like you said, it's just pick yourself back up and do something else if it doesn't get laughs. And you really learn to to fail fast and fail easily and recover and be resilient and stuff. So it definitely teaches a lot of great life lessons, I think. Yeah. And then the other thing you learn is that if you try to make a joke, it usually doesn't work. You don't have to try to be funny. Just the fact that in an absurd situation will make it funny for the audience. And so that's an, a big let it go of trying to be funny, but just say whatever comes to your mind and then that will be funny just in itself. Yeah, that's a great lesson. Just letting it flow and letting it happen. I, th- I think that applies to life and applies to business and everything. Anything just like trying to tell a joke on stage, anything you're trying to force just like anything you're trying to force in business is not necessarily going to turn out as well as if you can get into that flow state and just yeah. ride it out. I totally agree with that. So who are some of the creative minds or creative brands out there that really strike your fancy these days? No, what I love is, is a good user experience. And, and it's often just on the detail. It's what do you really think about the user? So I remember uh, a few years ago, I, I traveled to Thailand and I had, the, we, I was a friend of mine and we, we, we were in this hotel and the hotel looks really modern. So you would say design, but, and that would be the outside and the room was nice, but what was onboarded for me, the essence, a good experience and a good brand in that sense is that they had at the uh, on the there's a little sign in your room that you can put on your doorknob and they say what is your desire and it was blank and basically they were saying ask for anything and we'll try to do that for you and that was for me it was mind-blowing it's just yes yes i want you to have the best experience possible and what can we do for you and i think there is some brand that do that and there's some brand that just don't think about it 
and it has to fit their logic. Or you call the phone line for services and you have so many options that makes no sense and you can never talk to an agent. And that's make me really mad. Yeah, it's interesting, like how even with big brands, like who actually gets customer experience and customer service and customer success and who else is just kind of, we're a like monolithic mega brand. And so bow down to us, like, you, we know you're coming to wherever and buying our stuff and they just take it for granted, right? At a certain size, but it certainly happens at, at lower levels as well for smaller companies. And I think that's where businesses tend to go bad and things start to go downhill when they, I don't know if it's like too much business ego or something something that gets infused into an organization, but they just lose sight of like why they're doing it and that the customers are the people that they're actually there to serve. Yes. So it's backward. It's internally focused versus, versus being externally focused. For me, you were talking about customer experience. I, there's a lot of things to say about Amazon, good and bad, but I have to say every time I have a problem with an order, you can actually talk to them and they will solve the problem in a minute. And I, I love that. On the other hand, I was uh, having an issue with UPS and it was impossible to even get in touch with the agent because they have the stupid online men the menu, automatic menu, and you say something and they still, well, do you have a claim? No, I want to talk to the agent. And then finally talk to the agent is like, okay, I'm going to send you the form that you need to fill up. And the form was the same one that didn't apply to my case. And I spent 20 minutes on it. And there's, that was a bad customer experience and those make a huge difference. Oh, I totally agree. Like anytime you're engaging with something and they're like, try this. And you're like, I did. And they're just like, try it again. And you're like, no, I'm telling you, like your process doesn't work. Like something else needs to be done. I think Amazon though is a really fascinating example. I was just talking to someone about this the other day is that they're a two-sided marketplace, but they really only take care of one side of the market. And most people never know this, but if you haven't, so if you haven't sold anything on Amazon, like you wouldn't know how badly that they treat their sellers because to them, it's like, oh, bow down to us. Like, you're just lucky to be here and have us take double digit percentages from you, but we can close your account at any time. We can put any other restrictions on you that we want and we don't, it can just be a black box. Meanwhile, on the customer side, they're just like, we will do anything to make you satisfied. And it's really interesting because I think it opens this sort of place in the market for a company to come in and actually do something better for sellers. And I often wonder, you know, why there isn't a revolt from sellers, but I think it is just because everyone is so siloed and nobody really talks about how much of a problem it is. And I would imagine that if you as a seller started going on your social media and like ranting and raving against Amazon, eventually you're going to get your account shut down for criticizing them. So it's interesting to see like a two-sided marketplace that doesn't really care about one side of the market. Yeah. And uh, it makes me think of what in design thinking, we talked about being user-centered. And I think a lot of organizations misunderstand that they only look at the end users, which is really important, but that's not at all. When you create change, when you innovate, you should think about my definition of users is anybody that will be affected by whatever change you're creating. So if you look at Amazon, the end users is not one part, but the sellers and some of the other, the technology that is needed, whatever, they all uh, have an impact. And if you only look at one type of users, then uh, you're missing one of the big opportunities and you're not, you're not optimizing your business. 
Oh, I couldn't agree more. And I think that's... There's so much about how they treat the employees. Oh, yeah. The labor standards is a whole other ballgame. They're just like, no, you're just cannon fodder for the Amazon behemoth and stuff. But I do think all of those shortcomings really create a roadmap for companies that could eventually overtake Amazon. And I think right now people look at it and say, Amazon will never die. You could never overtake Amazon. But it's you go back in the Dow Jones and what... They lose two thirds of their companies every like 30 years or so. And it just cycles out. And most of the companies that started on there don't exist anymore. And most of the companies from 100 years ago don't exist anymore. And that'll be true 100 years from now. Whether Amazon sticks around and see what happens. Things like Shopify, I think that put way more control into both sides of the marketplace. I think those are the things that are going to win those are the platforms that are going to win in the end. And it may take a while to get there because right now it's just so insanely convenient to go on Amazon. But what if Shopify could unify their stores or something, right? What if there was like a Shopify mall and you could go in and simultaneously look at like multiple different kinds of stores all at once? I think those are the kinds of things that like have real potential to sort of upend what we now think of as the sort of Goliaths and behemoths that are just insurmountable in overtaking. Yeah, and uh, yeah, and definitely as a personally, I try to as as much as possible use less of Amazon. I used to go to Whole Food. I don't go to Whole Food anymore. I'm, I'm trying to, in my little way to have an impact and make choices. And we do have those choices. They might be a little harder, but I think I think that's part of how can we impact or influence this well, you know corporation or think are not behaving the way we would like them to behave. Oh, definitely. So Ellen, this has been a fascinating and enlightening conversation. And that brings me to my final question of the day. And that is, what is the kindest thing anyone has ever done for you? Uh, good question. I'm thinking travel these days. And I was remembering uh, when I was in my 20s, a friend of that, and I went to Greece and we were, you know, backpacking. And I remember on a bus meeting some, a group of people, and they just invited us to their house for just because. And I was like, the gift that is totally unexpected and just nice. And, and it's just uh, the random, you know, meetings you, you make in life and we never saw them again, but that was just a, such a nice gift. Oh, that's so beautiful. I love stories like that. Thank you so much for joining me today, Ellen. It was a pleasure to get to speak with you. Same here. I had a lot of fun in our conversation. Oh, thanks Thank so you much. for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. Today's episode was brought to you by Prosperitas, specializing in making stunning videos to help you win more customers and look your best online. Visit prosperitasagency.com today to learn how they create unforgettable videos for unforgettable companies. Thank you so much to all of our listeners for tuning in to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you found us so that others can find it as well. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at the LUE Podcast, or visit our website at theluepodcast.com. And if you'd like to support this show even further, I'd love to invite you to become a patron of the show. For as little as $5 per month, you can help us continue to produce high-quality shows with amazing guests like you heard today. To become a patron, please visit patreon.com slash theluepodcast. We look forward to having you tune in next time for the next episode of Law, the Universe, and Everything. I'm Pacifico Soldati, wishing you peace, love, and awesomeness. Yeah.